When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Novel Dialogue, a podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies and produced in partnership with Public Books, an online magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship. I'm Emily Hyde, one of the hosts and co-organizers of this season of Novel Dialogue. On this podcast, we bring together critics and novelists to talk about how novels work, how they're written, read, studied, and remembered. This season is centered on translation, both in theory and in practice, and so we're bringing together novelists, translators and critics in a wide range of conversations. Today, we have Yang Ge and Jeremy Tiang, two writers who work in and across Chinese and English. Yang Ge was born in Sichuan in China in 1984. She is a fiction writer in both Chinese and English. Her first short story collection was published in China when she was 17, and she's the author of 13 books, including six novels. And she's received numerous awards, including the Maodun Literature Prize for Best Young Writer. She was also named by People's Literature Magazine as one of the 20 future literature masters in China. Two of her novels have been translated into English, The Chili Bean Paste Clan, translated by Nikki Harmon, and Strange Beasts of China, translated by Jeremy Tiang. Yango started to write in English in 2016, and her debut English language story collection called Elsewhere will be published in 2023. She currently lives in Norwich in the UK with her husband and son. Jeremy Tiang has translated over 20 books from Chinese, including Strange Beasts of China, and most recently, Rouge Street by Shuang Shui Tao. He also writes and translates plays, and his own novel, State of Emergency, won the Singapore Literature Prize in 2018. Jeremy was the London Book Fair's translator of the fair in 2019, and earlier this year served as the Princeton University translator in residence and as an international Booker Prize judge and it's the International Booker Prize that is intended to honor both author and translator. Jeremy lives in Flushing in Queens. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Emily. Uh, thank you to Novel Dialogue. Thank you so much. It's uh, I'm so excited to be able to do anything with Jeremy, like a conversation. It's just yeah, thank you so much for this. It's deeply delightful to be in conversation with you, so I'm really excited for this. Well, this is perfect because at Novel Dialogue, um, we hosts kind of back slowly away at this point and turn things over <laughs> to our guests. So Jeremy, I'm gonna turn things over to you, though I'll probably pop in now and again with questions. So um, where would you like to begin? What's something you've wanted to ask Jan after working on her novel, Strange Beasts? 
Well, for a conversation about translation, it seems appropriate to begin with language. Um, so, Yen, I'm really interested in how language functions for you. You've written many books in Chinese. Um, you've, you've said that your latest novel um, involves generous helpings of Sichuanese, um, which is similar to, but not exactly the same as your native dialect of Pixianhua. Um, you've also spent time in the US. Um, you've lived in Dublin and have been described as an Irish writer. And now you're in the UK, um, having completed an MFA at the University of East Anglia, and you're writing in English. So that's quite a range of languages and influences. And um, I'm curious as to how all of this feeds into your writing process. Thank you, Jeremy. This is probably one of the best questions I've ever been asked. You know, sometimes you really want it. It's like questions, like good questions, really opens up as like a portal um, to kind of help me really kind of, in that sense, to explore myself. Um, so this is definitely one of those questions, but also I'm, I'm also saying it is probably very challenging for me. <laughs> um, I, think, I think I'm probably kind of um, by nature, somebody who's very sensitive towards and kind of susceptible um, of different languages, like voices and sounds around me. Um, and, and, I, and I think the reason, like when I was writing in Chinese, like I, um, not very quickly, but I think soon enough that I discovered and decided to begin to write in dialect, uh, which was something that was rather unsettling to me. Like this was when I was maybe 21, 22 years old. And, 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 I, and I thought it was such a, like now thinking back, it was probably something very natural. And I think it's something that has to be done for me. Um, but at that point, it felt really unsettling and kind of rebellious to kind of stop using Mandarin because I think it's a way we were taught especially as kids is to to speak to learn Mandarin it's a sign of being a good student be more advanced um, be more cultured so I think it was a bit scary for me to kind of decide to include Sichuanese and then eventually Sichuanese became like the main language of my Chinese writing um, and I think it is really because my sort of um, sensibility, maybe like with the language that I just could not, it's almost like I'm a little, I don't know, like an animal or something kind of very intuitively. I think I just cannot tolerate having the characters talking in language that doesn't seem natural to them. And I think it's pretty much based on because of the similar logic that later when I was living in Dublin, although I really never quite planned to kind of um, write in English. In fact, I kind of pretty much resisted this idea of bringing English into my literary world. I kind of feel this is like the last ground I'm holding that at that point, I think I have been kind of living in English for quite a long time. Not long time, long time maybe in my world. Um, I say three, four years, um, but I would still be kind of like, no, 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 my literal world has to be solely Chinese. But I think naturally it was it was through a similar thing, like when I was writing a particular thing that I realized in a very similar fashion many years ago when I discovered that I cannot having the characters in my story speaking Mandarin and they had to speak Sichuanese and I had to go with that dis 
decision. And similarly, um, in this case, I realized I could not write this story, this essay um, in Chinese, and I had to do it in English because that only felt natural, felt kind of organic to me. And so that, and, and then I had to kind of, um, so I, I suppose it is really quite impulsive in that, in every kind of decision-making point where I decided I have to switch language. It's almost like the outer force has like cornered me and I had to change. I think in each case, it seems like, although kind of looking back, it's kind of like, it is kind of inevitable um, because I think, I think changing a language um, really has everything to do with one's change of identity. And I think it is really because I'm sure you would resonate with this more than, or more than any, anyone else I know in person. Um, is that the changing of identity really requires a different way of expressing yourself. I think that, I think maybe different artists would choose different means to express that fluidity, that kind of turbulence in their shifting, changing of the identity. And for me, I think the method I chose, I picked up with something, you know, that I use all the time, which is the language. And then I changed that. I think it's just my way of, of expressing that. Yeah, I, I think that's really well put. It, it's kind of a um, feedback mechanism where um, speaking and writing in a different language turns you into a different person, but also becoming a different person requires you to use a different language. Um, and I, I'm really interested in what you said about fluidity, because I think that is this conventional idea that um, a language switch kind of is a one-way change, right? That there's this image of Yi Yunli or Xiao Lu Guo deciding that they will only write in English and not Chinese, or Junpa Lahiri deciding she will only write in Italian and not English from now on. Whereas you're much more hybrid or well fluid. You don't so much switch languages as accumulate languages. And it feels to me um, from what you were saying and, and from your writing that it's more like these languages, these modes of expression are tools you have in a case and you're acquiring more of them and you're deploying them as required by the particular story that you're telling at that moment. Does that feel like an accurate summary of your process? Yeah, I mean, that is absolutely true. And in a sense, this fluidity and, and as you were describing that, like bringing up the writer's names, all of whom really inspired me and, and I really admired, you know, I think so much of what I decided to do with my writing were more or less kind of nudged and encouraged by all those writers you just mentioned. Um, but also I was thinking about this sense of like abandoning one language and picking up the other and thinking how much of that, or I don't know if that's necessarily true with each individual writers um, because maybe they, they're still kind of thinking about, I don't know, but like, this is how we, like general public kind of decide to perceive that. I think so much of that is built on this concept of this idea of binary. And it's recently I've been thinking a lot about, you know, the language, how that determines how you think. And I think it's precisely in this world where we can say kind of Anglophone world where English is a dominating language. And we think about all of those is kind of sets of occidental values in the sense we think about things Kind of large. I kind of I'm very afraid of making this grand statement, um, 
like the narrative of strange beasts do <laughs> does. <laughs> um, but um, but I think this sets of values, like how we perceive the world precisely, is kind of it's like a linear, it's like a linear, progressive and time concept. And, and it's this um, it's this kind of a rich sense of binary. And I think it comes from the maybe the Greek idea where we have to, you know, the how we find truth is we peel off, we kind of dis disregard, we discard uh, what we consider we what we consider as the fake, and then we then discuss the truth. But then the idea of discovering the truth and the peeling off the fake is kind of the establish of this binary. And in a sense, if you choose English, you have to abandon Chinese because one is truth, one is false. Um, but I kind of think in the Chinese way of thinking about it is quite time could be quite circular. And in the sense, I always believe, especially kind of like, you know, through the translation of Strange Beasts of China and then me reading the translation, I think I, I'm learning so much from that old me that really reminded me of how so many things are kind of like, it's really going, I don't know, like spiral or like circular. And, and also in the sense of how truth is being discovered, I think I, I really like this story. I'm going to bring up Confucius. I apologize for for bringing up Confucius as the Chinese, which is kind of such a cliche, but in this sense of, of truth and how Confucius thinks, I don't agree with Confucius on um, a lot of things about this thing. I, I thought that actually kind of influenced me so much is that truth um, is inhabiting in so many different elements. And then this metaphor he uses is the moon is reflected in the thousand rivers. In that sense, there's this fluidity in truth. Like we do not want to kind of throw away the fake, the fake part of things is every part, regardless of being fake or being authentic, um, there was that that has truth embedded in it. And we just need to go to different places to discover different versions of truth that's being hidden in this particular objects and there could be a lot of different things so I think I, I'm really buying into this sense of um, truth of truth being in truth as the moon being reflected in a thousand rivers so I think in that sense I am a collector right yes language helps us to communicate but it can also fix thoughts and ideas because we have to put them into words um, which takes away some of their fluidity and I really love the idea of, of truth being reflected in a thousand rivers, because um, in a way that describes the whole process of how Strange Beasts of China structures itself as a novel. Um, the protagonist is an unnamed cryptozoologist who makes it her life's work, or at least her life's work at the moment, um, she probably has many pursuits in her life, um, but having forsaken science for literature, she makes it her work to track down individual beasts and study them and write about them. And what she finds in every case is that society has provided these very rigid definitions of who these beasts are and what they do and how they function, only for her to discover that actually the truth is far more complicated and nuanced than that. And she has to go in search of what is underneath these rigid classifications and her fixed idea of the world slowly crumbles, right? We perceive these easy binaries because that allows us to make sense of the world. But the, the further she digs, 
the more she explores, the more she realizes that it, it really isn't that simple. Um, so the novel kind of um, reveals itself, rediscover the world at the same time as your protagonist discovers it. Um, and I know that for you, there was an element of that in that you wrote it as a serial novel. Um, and so each chapter was published individually. So you were in a sense also discovering it at the same time as us and kind of locking in earlier decisions that you had to abide in later. Um, looking back now, how does that feel, this whole process of discovery, discovering a novel in real time at the same time as your readers? It, it is something that can typically, that would typically be done by a very young person, I think, is like if you're, <laughs> and it's, it's just quite hubristic in that sense. And, and I could not even begin to imagine, like now I would take on a mission like that, because that means you're so confident, although you're like only starting from the scratch, like the first sentence of chapter one, you are certain you'll be able to produce a chapter every month. And also you would not be able to go back to change the previous chapters and whatever you've written there and ha then have been published. So it's like this great sense of confidence that you're very sure. Like, like I think I must have mentioned to you that when I was writing Strange Beast and quite often it's kind of like this very funny um, synchronization that's me and the author is pretty much the same to uh, as the, the 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 female protagonist in the story who's being chased by her editor and I was then being chased by my editor asking me to hand in the new chapters and very often I would kind of delay that until last minute and he'd be calling me like in rage and saying we've got all the other things ready and we're like we have empty pages waiting for you this is going to print you have to give it to me tomorrow and only then I'd sit down and quite often it's like throughout the one night so I'd kind of begin maybe after dinner like seven eight and then I just write the whole chapter like the whole story and like then send it to him like tomorrow the, the next day morning which is really a terrible way of going about things I just I feel so sorry about like my editor. I kind of feel he probably had to put up so much. And also like that sheer energy. And, and also it's almost, it's like this great, it's like this sense of a delirium, almost like, you know, so you, you have to plug yourself, plunge yourself into that and then allow yourself to get lost completely. And and, to, and also to not be afraid of producing terrible things. I think I probably have produced like terrible bits in this novel. It's kind of like this, it's like a fever dream, I think in many sense. First of all, I'm once again, tremendously envious of your rock and roll lifestyle, Yen. When I was 21, I was staying up all night writing essays for university like a nerd. And here you are producing these amazing chapters, which, um, A, I don't think they're terrible at all. I think the whole book is brilliant, but also assessments like terrible seem beside the point, because as you say, this really is a fever dream. And when I have a fever dream, I don't go, oh, that's a good or bad dream. You kind of just experience it. And, and that, in many ways, is the only way to to go through Strange Beasts of China or you just let it happen to you. Um, which I think seems like a good juncture to now let it happen to our listeners. Let's do a little bit of a reading from the book. Um, so now Yen is going to read in Chinese and I will read the same um, paragraphs in English. 
um, we're going to read from the chapter Sacrificial Beasts. Um, firstly, the little bit at the opening, which is similar to the opening section of all the chapters, where the classifications of the beasts are given, the same ones that may or may not be subverted later in the chapter. Yeah, so I'm going to read at the very beginning of um, chapter three in Chinese. Um, 舍身受性忧郁,喜高寒,远古时在山巅可见,其身形高大,腹黑,眼微蓝,唇薄,而垂修长,成巨齿形,其余若常人。Sacrificial beasts are melancholy by nature, drawn to high places and low temperatures. In the distant past, they could be found on mountain peaks. They are tall and dark-skinned, with pale blue eyes and thin lips. Their earlobes hang low and have a saw-toothed edge. In all other respects, they are like regular people. And could I say, reading that out, I, I am jealous of the brevity and compression of Chinese. Like, oh no, I have to unpack all of that into much longer English sentences. Whereas Chinese, particularly the classical Chinese register that you you, you were using, Yen, um, it allows mm. you to pack in all these descriptions into just a few short phrases. And from a little later in the chapter, we're going to read a conversation between the unnamed protagonist and her niece, Lucia, who has just encountered a beast. Yeah, so I'm going to read that in Chinese first. Um, here we go. 我对兽的家族不了解,但至少对于人,家族是伟大的,是一棵树的根,给你生,给你活,却让你死,让你死在根上。但小鹿家不懂这些,他还是个小女孩,见我,哭哭啼啼,扑我怀中,叫小姨,
I just listening um, to you reading that just made me really emotional um, because um, that little girl in the story um, whose name in Chinese is Lu Jia and is my actual niece. Like, well, her name will have like different um, characters, but it's the same pronunciation. And she was born the year, um, like about six months after my mom died. So then I think I, when I was writing this story and I kind of brought in this little character, really thinking about her and she as a baby. And, and I think I put a lot of love into that character because I think I was very, I was really moved when she was born, like in a way, kind of seeing the continuity of life. Um, but like just today I was talking to my family and so she's, uh, she's, she's in the last year of high school now. She's <laughs> preparing for her college entrance examination. And, and I just suddenly thought like, this is like a flashback having that uh, paragraph being read out and realizing at that point she was that small. She was actually smaller than that. That was like my imagined more grown up version of her. And when I wrote that and now she's about to go to college, it's just crazy. Just to put it, put like, you know, the, the passing of time when you put it that way, like, especially like measured by a young person, it just seems so dramatic. I mean, but yes, that, that passage of time is remorseless. Um, and, and yet, um, I'm, I'm really interested in how, in a way, the translation of this book um, was a kind of revisiting for you um, 15 years after you wrote it. Um, and, and normally when I'm able to work with a living author, I, I do try to get to know their voice and try to get to know them because I, I, I think authorial voice is always filtered in some way into the text and that helps me to ground myself. But in this case, I was sort of triangulating from the version of you I, I know now and the version that I thought I saw in the text and trying to find the, the right voice in between those two places. Um, and I, I guess my question is, if you were writing this book now, how would it be different? Um, first of all, I don't think I would, it's funny, I, I don't think I would allow myself to write a book like this now, which it's quite sad, actually, just to, because I, 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 I read that, read your translation, and this was maybe in 2020, is it, when it came out um, with Tilted Axis, and then I, I was really quite shocked by, because I pretty much have forgotten most of it, and I read it, I was pretty shocked by, by the story, like, couldn't quite believe that I actually wrote that, and and then I did ask myself, would I be able to write something like that? I think I would totally censor myself, not in the sense of like, because I like accidentally I said that word and I knew everybody would be like immediately quite alert. So, oh, what she's going to talk about. It's not that. It's, um, it's how as you get older or kind of as you become more, quote unquote, sophisticated as a writer, you wanted to, you, you kind of, um, you know, you wanted to, integrate yourself into this literary body, which is quite often like serious, socio-realistic and maybe quite male-dominating. And I very soon, like after that, actually adopted this quite like a male narrative voice, which then kind of um, made me quite 
not quite relatively more successful in China. I think it was because I then had this pure kind of a male voice, like narrative voice, and then people were quite amazed by that is produced by me. And I felt quite happy about it, about like being able to trick them. And so it, I kind of, I really see, especially through rereading this book and how we were all kind of um, affected and in a way maybe oppressed by the existing system. And that system is not established by us, especially I think, you know, when I was writing Strange Beasts, I was a young woman. I wasn't saying like I was being in, you know, I was like a privileged person, like a college student and everything, but it's kind of, it just teaches me how, you know, you thought you were like a free spirited writer and you thought you were like expressing yourself freely, but it's not really because you have all those ground that represents power that is around you and you try to climb on top of that or you try you see that and I think and I think see that 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 is what again that is how it is how we were taken into kind of those those kind of enclosed system and and I'm like kind of it envisioning this as like, you know, I'm like this person when I was writing Nishouji, Strange Beast, I'm like outside of that, that enclosed circle and knocking the door. And then maybe at one point the door kind of suddenly opened and then I was dragged in and the door was shut closed behind me. And then it's almost like, yes, you were then taken into the, the high literature system. Um, but then you were also kind of imprisoned because you've accessed the system and you are now have to stay in the system. And it's really hard now for me to break out of that system that I'm now part of um, to kind of allow myself to write something like Strange Beasts because now I'm part of it. And I kind of, you know, I'm totally kind of, a, I've been, I've been kind of a, <laughs> marinated in those kind of values and to think oh what is good literature we have to you know be like <laughs> socio-realistic <laughs> and, and 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 so on and so forth and all, including like your pro style how you're etc but yeah and, and and but then like I read Strange Beast like I said like about two years ago like your translation it it's like a wake-up call I was like oh yes that was I was able to do that because I was genuinely free and um, and that really got me thinking, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question about power and tradition and you know the, the canon of literature, probably because I'm an English professor and that's what I teach, you know, is like to watch out for that, um, but also to enforce it. So I was just wondering, um, especially in with the way that you've been talking about the place of strange beasts in its you know original Chinese form and then to its return in English. Um, do you do you think of the novel differently in English than you do in Chinese, specifically the novel form? Because um, Chinese has its own long history of the novel form. Um, and I know right now you're writing in both. You're writing a Chinese novel, you're finishing a Chinese novel, but you're writing short stories in English. So I just wonder if there's something um, different in the way that you write a Chinese novel in particular, as opposed to how you might fit into those systems of power and literary prestige in English. Mm, I well so I don't know if I'm like fully qualified to answer this question because I've I haven't written a novel in English <laughs> so um but but if I could just talk if I could just talk about like 
the general sense of writing fiction in Chinese and writing fiction in English. Um, I, I do think, like, noticed, I noticed this myself, is that I was able to write, um, write a lot of things to kind of um, explore via my fiction, um, a lot of subject matters in English that I, it's not like I did, I couldn't, it's because it just wouldn't never occur to me that is a literary topic. Um, and I think the reason for that I think I definitely have talked about this somewhere else, so I feel bad for repeating myself, but I thought it was quite important is I, I, I truly believe that um, Chinese, not in the sense of Chinese versus English, but in the sense of one's native language versus one's second language, um, is that the native language is always heavily infused with the patriarchal structure. And typically for a woman, I think there were certain words and phrases, characters, I quite often would have negative uh, stigmatizing connotations that were associated with a female feeling or a female, you know, it's a, it's a, a, a associated with like female body or like your periods or a lot of things like the bad things. <laughs> and then I, th I think, I think when using, when kind of um, bringing up words or phrases like that in your native language, it kind of gives you this kind of a bodily sensation it kind of almost, it almost kind of um, um, paralyzes you that you couldn't just bring yourself to explore further because you cannot, or I don't know if you can, but like I would never wanted to write in Chinese um, a story about say having period because the word period in Chinese would be quite loaded for me. Uh, Cause I, I know like rationally recognize that but still you couldn't really. So I think there was, I, this obviously, I think there were definitely other aspects of, but this is the first thing I discovered. So then I think when I write in English, say my story collection would have um, a number of stories that were quite womanly, like that were, that kind of explore kind of female aspects of like experience, body, et cetera. Um, and I felt, quite free in that sense, because I'm not saying there's no stigma being attached to those things in English. It's just, I couldn't feel it because it's my learned language. And so then I, I, I thought this was such an amazing thing actually for me to, to be able to be like more free. I, I know lots of people have said that when they talk about like writing in a second language. And um, it's definitely that sense. And, and I think it, it, it's come, it, it comes from, one being completely disassociated with the like the cultural and social um, context of the language, but only kind of using it as like a linguistic tool. Um, so then it's kind of, um, I, I imagine myself being quite naughty, like being kind of like a rascal when I write in English, cause I'm kind of like the smear on the wall cause I really don't care. <laughs> Whereas in Chinese, you, you know, you're kind of like, you're heavily, you're kind of bird, not even, on the one hand, that's your heritage. On the other hand, it's like a burden. You're kind of like a tra trying to move forward with all those like thousands of years of like cultural <laughs> context and, and and then it's very hard I think for me to to move more swiftly whereas in English I, I definitely think I'm more I'm much more changeable which I don't know if it is a good thing I think I'm much more experimental I allow myself to do things um that might 
seem to be quite green. Well, earlier, earlier, Yen, you were talking about the dominance of English. And I think you're right that we can't treat English as just another language, right? Because it is in such a, it's such a hegemonic language to be writing in or to be translated into. It kind of pulls you into this world of, um, yeah, I'm uncomfortable with the term world literature, but I guess that that's what we're using for now. So like with world literature, you're like, what do any of these books have to do with each other, other than that they were all written away from the Anglophone centres of power and some often not in English, right? So there's a flattening effect, but it is seen as necessary in order that they can be studied or marketed in conjunction or so that they're easily classifiable. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think it must be very Dif- sort of like a really d- difficult and different um, practice as a translator, in particular, like from Chinese to English, because it's kind of, you know, it's bringing voices and story from a very, you know, marginalized place and into the so-called center. I feel bad for saying that, um, but it is a reality because I, I, I don't think from all the translators I've worked with or had had have had conversations with and only English translator or the English publisher would say you have to come to meet the English reader because you would never hear somebody else saying you have to come to meet the Hungarian reader or like <laughs> you know that was never you kind of pretty much get to present your text as it is where like it's the translator's personal choice rather than here you'd always hear that you have to come to meet the English reader and because the English reader is not ready to move an inch Sometimes people would ask me, um, why don't you translate your own work? And I would just say, really, I am not able to. Because <laughs> I think it's it's such a, yeah, I don't really know. How, how, do, you, how do you do it? <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't translate my own work either. Um, I, I, I think um, having another voice, uh, another interpretive lens is, like, that's an experience I hugely enjoy. Uh, both as a translator myself and as a writer who has been translated. Um, and and I, I, I'm all about like collaboration and hybridity. And I, I think if you can bring another voice in as the translator of the work, why wouldn't you do that rather than essentially rewriting a book, just using a different one of your voices? Um, so I, I would always, yeah, I would always opt for the, the translator. That's so interesting. To, to you talk about like using a different kind of voices. Yeah, I, I was thinking about in in terms of you know, translation, like world literature or like translation literature, and versus say English literature. And and I think, it is really such a privilege to have this particularity. Like when you're in a different country, and your your particularity, your individuality were completely taken away from you because that is a privilege and you just don't have that privilege anymore you just live in this general sense it's like a general Chinese person a general Chinese a general an East Asian woman who walks on the streets of Dublin and, and and I think in a way in that sense me writing in English is me writing back towards this sense of a universality this generalization because literature is what it is, is to emphasize, is to magnify the particularity of each individual's life and experience, no matter how transient that might be. 
And I think that in essence is really me kind of punching back, writing back to that sense of this general East Asian woman <laughs> walking on the street of the... <laughs> Well, I, I just want to say that I was lucky enough to read an advanced copy of um, Yen's amazing short story collection elsewhere. Um, and it, it encapsulates everything Yen was saying about pushing back against the labels that have been put on her um, as a so-called Chinese writer or Asian writer or immigrant writer. There's a kind of, in the best possible way, a gleeful recklessness in the way it smashes everything you might expect of a book from someone with these labels, and it's completely unclassifiable. I actually have a question about English um, for Jeremy. Um, so the Queen's English in particular. Um, so your own prize-winning novel is called State of Emergency, and it's, a, it's about um, families involved with leftist movements um, kind of throughout the second half of the 20th century in Singapore and in Malaya. Um, and it's written in English. Uh, but the kind of the opening romance that kind of sets the plot in motion is between a Chinese speaking young girl and um, a young man from Singapore who's, who is mocked for speaking pretty much only the Queen's English. Um, and she teases him for not speaking Chinese. So, uh, I mean, a, a general version of the question is something like, if you're even if you're writing a novel in one language, how do you or how did you incorporate um, the, this, these kind of undercurrents of Chinese? Um, but, uh, you know, a, a more political version of the question um, connected to what Yan was just talking about is, you know, especially like how do you incorporate other languages when you yourself are writing in, um, you know, you're writing in English, which has this history of dominance and hegemony in Singapore um, and, and globally, too. Yeah, I, I, I think um, as someone who was born and grew up in Singapore, um, but who has also spent most of um, my adult life outside of Singapore. Um, I feel doubly in between, I suppose, in that when you're in Singapore, English is a dominant language just because we were a British colony and because we have four official languages, but English is the common one. So that's the working language that gets used a lot. So you, as a writer, um, it happens to be my own dominant language. Um, but it's also the language that makes most sense as a medium of communication. But at the same time, when you live in Singapore, English might be the working language, but it's never exclusively English. Like the other languages seep into it. And so they, I feel they seeped into my writing into a very organic way, like where it made sense to use a word for a different language, I would just use that. Um, like if you have, say, a yu for breakfast, I would call it a yu and not a fried dough crawler or whatever, because no one calls it that. Um, so I don't think that is necessarily a need to make yourself legible to the outside gaze. Um, and it's not like everything has to be cut up into bite-sized pieces and made consumable. I, I, I think we can accept as readers that um, sometimes even though many things are catered to the English-speaking world, um, sometimes it's good to be brought outside of that and to experience the momentary discomfort of not understanding and, and making that journey, because ultimately that, that broadens and enriches the experience um, to be taken outside of yourself, which is, after all, ostensibly why we read, is it not? 
that is a beautiful place to end. It is why we read and why we teach and why we write as well. So as always, we close episodes of Novel Dialogue with a signature question. So this is shared across all the conversations that we're having this season about translation. And it's a question for you both because you both work in, in, um, in across two languages. So um, I think, why don't we start with Jeremy? Um, so here it is. Is there a word or a concept that you consider untranslatable or very, very difficult to translate? I mean, I, I have said this before, so I'm now repeating myself, um, but I'm going to go ahead and do that. All words are untranslatable. Like no words mean the same thing, even to the same individual speaking the same language, let alone two individuals speaking completely different languages. Um, what I imagine when I say the word market or farm is going to conjure up completely different images and associations to someone living in a different country where markets and farms are completely different. And I think the same is true for actions and, and nouns and emotions and everything. So translation is the process of trying to find the closest equivalent between these very different states of being. Words themselves are just our ways of trying to pin down these impossible to articulate swarms of, of meaning in our heads. So yeah, the fact that we can communicate at all, let alone across different languages is a kind of miracle. But then in a sense, in that sense of um, untranslatability of like any language, I think it's maybe why I write fiction because to me, fiction is the picture. I'm not answering the question now. <laughs> It's, it's because language is inadequate, um, according to Wittgenstein and Confucius, <laughs> to express the meaning. <laughs> so <laughs> we need to set up the picture. Um, well, in Confucius' sense, we need to set up, uh, I don't know why do I call Confucius all the time, I'm sorry. Um, we need to set up the image, because only by um, rendering meanings via language into the image could we comprehend the real meaning. And I think that is why I write fiction. Um, because to me, fiction does need does not need to, you know, make a statement, and um, because it's not an essay, um, it does not necessarily need to say anything. But it's kind of um, a self-contained, organic, hopefully, image, and that is what I want to say. I think, in that sense, I'm totally agreeing with Jeremy. Well, I don't know if this is audible, but my cat is yowling outside the the home office. And in a way that is um that is the pure untranslatability, right? She's just expressing pure need or pure emotion, and you couldn't put that into words. Um and but I, I kind of think all communication is like that. She just is more direct about it. I love that. Um, so I, I'd like to bring this to a close by thanking you both for this sharp and really refreshing conversation. Um, I think it's a real model for sort of the warmth and friendship that can come when you have a writing life. Um, so thank you, Jeremy, and thank you, Yan. Um, and as always, we are grateful to the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship, to Public Books for its partnership, and we'd also like to acknowledge the support of Duke University. Hannah Jorgensen is our graduate intern, and Connor Hibbard is our sound engineer. Novelists from past seasons include Changwei Li, Teju Cole, Singrid Nunez, Tom Parada, and Ruth Ozeki. And we have many more conversations about language, translation, and novels coming your way this season. So from all of us at Novel Dialogue, thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us wherever you get our podcasts.